My, 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 what a beautiful crowd. Beautiful crowd. There are thousands of places you could have chosen to be this morning, and I am delighted and honored that you chose to be here. This is uh, one of the hot spots of the universe, not just on Sunday morning, but every, every day of the year. Um, and it is a place that has given me great sustenance. Uh, there are times when, in the 10 years that I've been helping to build the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture, there are days when I say, we've bitten off more than we can chew. We are raising, we're building something that has never existed before. We're doing it in 10 years, and uh, are we nuts? <laughs> Three o'clock in the morning, I say, yeah, we are nuts. But, uh, you know, this is the day the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. I walked by that building at about midnight last night, and my hands went up like this. There were times, there were many times I walked by, and I just did a very quiet, prayerful, dignified little prayer, Lord, please deliver us through this. Last night, I walked through, my hands hit up the shape of the building itself, and I said, hallelujah, hallelujah, we did it. <laughs> and we did it with some extraordinary help from some extraordinary people. John Lewis, Congressman John Lewis, 5th District of Georgia, for 15 consecutive years, he presented legislation to build the African American Museum. For 14 years, it was voted down by somebody. Somebody didn't thought it was too much money. Somebody thought it didn't belong on the mall. Just didn't want to see it happen. And suddenly, after 15, 14 years of trying this, it was George W. Bush who signed the legislation to create that museum. It was George W. Bush and his wife, Laura Bush, who wrote one of the first checks to, to go to help build that museum. And it was George W. Bush there last night uh, who said, you know, it should have been done a long time ago. But he did it, and we, we are grateful. Um, around about 2 o'clock last Wednesday, traffic was stopped on Pennsylvania Avenue. There was a police escort. You looked down Pennsylvania Avenue and there was the blue light up, up rolling. And it was the most unusual bit of cargo. It was a 500-pound bell that had been built in 1776 for an African-American church in Williamsburg, Virginia. It came out of the van was installed in front of the museum on the stage. And at about noon, a little after noon yesterday, Barack Obama led, gathered a team of people, his wife, descendants of slaves in Williamsburg, rang the bell. The bell rang, started on the mall, and then immediately bells all around the city, all around the District of Columbia and outside about 32 churches, including this one, rang the bell to signify the opening of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. It didn't have to happen, but it happened. The seed was planted 100 years ago, 
1960, no, excuse me, there was a group of people who gathered to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the close of the Civil War. And there were a great many Civil War African-American soldiers who were wanted to be part of that procession down Pennsylvania Avenue. It was not allowed because they were the wrong color. They were African-American. And it was at that moment that people started thinking, we need a museum. We need a way to honor the history of African-Americans in this country. That's when it started 100 years ago. So there were several times when people came together and said, yeah, we're right, we need, we need something to honor the African-American tradition. And at one point, there was actual legislation that was created to create a Mammy Museum. Uh, that did not come to fruition, although it had a great deal of support. But through the years, the, the support came, the money came, and most importantly, the scholarship came. What exists on the National Mall right this minute is now it's 400,000 square feet of space, 12 exhibition galleries, and a way to gather people to talk about what has happened in this country, in its, race, its tortured past of race in this country. There are some very painful stories being told in this museum. There's no way we can tell the story of the African-American in this country without telling painful stories. Let me give you a few. In 1794, a slave ship that was on its way from Port that was on its way to Portugal sank with about 400 enslaved Africans on board. Half of those Africans perished in that, in that wreck. The other were saved and immediately sold back into slavery. My museum gathered a team of underwater archaeologists and went down in only in 38 feet of water just off the coast of South Africa in one of the most exotic off one of the most exotic beaches in the world, 38 feet down, a team of scuba divers looked at the wreckage on the floor of the ocean and pulled up things to tell the story, a small part of the story of the African slave trade. Items as simple as iron bars that were put on, the, on one end of the boat to stabilize the boat because there were human beings on that boat, and the boat was going to rock like this unless it was stabilized. So there were iron bars, and then items as tragic and as painful as a wooden beam with a shackle attached. That was 1794. In 1940, about 13 African-American young men, teenagers, 18, 20 years old, were part of an experiment to see if African-Americans could learn to fly planes. Boy, did they learn to fly planes. These were the, these were the training for the famed Tuskegee Airmen. They flew those planes. They did magnificent award-winning combat duty. They were bomber escorts. So my museum collected a plane that was used to train these Tuskegee Airmen. In 1955, 
a young boy from Chicago, 14 years old, went down to visit his relatives in Mississippi, and he did not make it back. Um, on a trip to a general store in Money, Mississippi, he went to buy cookies and soft drinks, and he made the mistake of, so they say, whistling at a white woman. He was never seen alive again. He was abducted. White supremacists came to the tumble-down house where he was sharing a bed with his cousin, Simeon Wright, and the young Emmett Till was never seen again. So imagine what it was like to be at the opening of the museum last night and to look to my right and I see coming toward me Simeon Wright, who is the cousin of Emmett Till, who shared that bed with Emmett Till and was the last to see Emmett Till alive. He was there. And imagine looking to my left and I see Peter Kovler. Does anyone in the room know Peter Kovler? Peter Kovler wrote a check for $2 million to make sure that my museum was able to do a very tasteful exhibition of the casket in which Emmett Till was buried in 1955. We have that casket and we have it placed in an exhibition space that recreates the Chicago church where Emmett Till's funeral was held in 1955. It also recreates the music that was sung at Emmett Till's funeral in 1955. So you go into this very quiet, sacred sanctuary, and you hear Mahalia Jackson singing, Precious Lord, take my hand. You go into that space, there's not a word, nobody says a mumbling word. I was in there last night, quiet, quiet, quiet. And there's a film that we have uh, screening. It talks about, it has Simeon Wright actually being interviewed, and he talks about how those white supremacists came to the door in the middle of the night. And there was one woman who shook her head and said, and I quote, they come to our houses in the dark of night. They demand our children. They kill them. What kind of world is this? There is no historian, no poet, who could have said any better what that woman said last night to that group of people. And in the room to hear that was Simeon Wright, the cousin of Emmett Till. There are stories like this that will break your heart, and there are stories that will put your heart back together again. This museum is designed... Let me back up a minute. When the... George W. Bush finally signed the legislation. We said, oh, goodness, we went through all these years of trying to get legislation. It's here now. The rest is so easy. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> Kept us up nights and days. Um, it was, no, just a few things, just a few things. Let me make a list of the things that we had to do. First of all, we had to find a spot to deliver, to build this museum. Find a spot. That's easy, right? We have to find a, des- a designer to design the building. We had to raise the money, and we had to get the stuff to go into these exhibitions. Finding the spot. I don't have to spend much time telling you there are a whole lot of people who did not want an African-American museum 
on the National Mall. We can leave it at that. Well, we got that spot, and it was actually George W. Bush. He was one of the first to say, and it should be built on the mall. Thank God it was built on the mall. I mean, that's the, that's the, nat- that's the, na- the nation's cultural corridor. Mil- 30 million people, average of 30 million people, come to the National Mall to see the other Smithsonian museums. So to see the 19th, we get a lot of those 30 million people. We had to find a designer. Very tough to put something on sacred ground as is the National Mall. Uh, There are no fewer than 22 agencies that look at anything designed for to be built on the mall. And 22 agencies looked at this one and said, oh, my, 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 you're putting something that doesn't look much like anything else on the mall. And you know what? We did that on purpose. It was not going to be a museum like any other on the mall, so it had to look different. So 22 architectural firms stepped forward with plans to do this, and we selected one that was Freeline I.J. Bond. And what they did, you can now see on the National Mall. Then comes the tricky part. This museum was to cost $500 million. Next thing we knew, this museum was going to cost $540 million. Well, long story short, we had to raise $270 million. And guess what? We did it. And we did it better than that. Remember what Louis said this morning? This money is a powerful instrument. We only needed to raise $270 million. We raised $330 million. Why? Because very generous people, people with big hearts, stepped forward and gave money. Bill and Melinda Gates came with $10 million. Uh, Oprah Winfrey came out with $20 million. Robert Smith, who is the chair, president of the Carnegie Hall Foundation, came out with $20 million. And a group of fourth graders from the Montessori School in Brooklyn came out with $250 in nickels and dimes and quarters. And present. So that's how the little, little ones, the big ones, and the big, big, big ones all came out to raise the money to make this happen. What do we have inside? The top of what you see on the outside is not what you get. There's twice that much underground. There are four floors of exhibitions. You start on the very lowest level with the very most heartbreaking stories of slavery, segregation, and you move up through the floors and you go into segregation, you up through, get to the top floor where it is a celebration of African-American culture. The music, the dance, the food, the theater, the spoken words, and it's just this wonderful stew of the African-American creative force that's been at work on this in this country for more than 400 years. Who is this museum for? The title says it's the National Museum of African American History and Culture. It's more than that. This is America's story. The African-American story is the quintessential American story, and it is there to be told in the items on display and in the public programs and the films and the lecture series 
that we will present. And if the opening is anything like um, the rest of the 365 days of the year, I think we're in for a... Don't, don't mind that. It rings all the time. Let me back up a minute. Someone, one of my choir members asked me, she was reading the fact that I was going to be speaking today and introduced me as a specialist. She said, what is public affairs specialist? She said, what does that mean? I said, well, today that means that I have lunch with Scott Pelley and a team of his producers to go to work on the third segment that CBS is doing on what we are, the research that we're doing with the museum. So that's lunch with Scott Pelley and his team at 12.30. At 3 o'clock, I'm in the museum with the New York Times. It thrills me to, beyond description, to tell you how pleased we are that media organizations are stepping out to tell this story in a rich and a compelling way, and they are doing it constantly, constantly, constantly. Um, The Washington Post and the New York Times have put out special segments so the word is getting out, and the, and the word is there is a wonderful story being told in this museum, and we're inviting everybody to come see. Don't come once. Come several times. Stay long. Ask questions. Come back again. Bring your closest friends at that. Um, there are times when I am step out to tell the story of what's in here, and I am reduced to tears, and I just can't say too much because they are heartbreaking stories. But we have to hear the tragic stories alongside the stories of resilience and triumph, Olympic gold medals being won, 10 of them, but Carl Lewis. Carl Lewis was at the opening last night. Um, and if you didn't know it was Carl Lewis, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, who is this? Real? Oh, hello, who are you? I'm Carl Lewis. Okay, and he gave us 10 of his gold medals. He won 11 gold medals, he gave us 10, and the other he put in the casket with his father, and it was buried with him, but those other 10 are there for the world to see. I know, it's, um, excuse me, I'm having a hard time here. I think I need to take a question or two so I can move through this emotional here. You probably heard that the news reports that we put out, we made available 28,500 timed entry passes those passes were gone in 47 minutes, just like that. How many of you did get passes? I, you, you, look at the luck. <laughs> well, we made uh, another thousands and thousands of passes available again, and they are all gone. The, all the passes are spoken for through the month of November. But what I am making arrangements to do is to get a group of passes for this congregation. <laughs> and before we go, it would be nice if we could go perhaps on a Sunday and, and gather with, and I'll bring several of my curators in and we'll walk you through some of the film footage of the Tuskegee airplane in flight, the scuba divers diving. We'll do a, a, a pre-visit orientation and then go as a group. So I am working on that. Um, I will send, I can probably make arrangements for 80, and we'll split the group into two. Well, actually, we'll split it into four, 20 each. So I will be circulate, sending out information through the bulletin, and uh, 
make that happen just as soon, probably dis- early December. Would be good, yeah. Okay, uh, the question was what, what hours are in, in effect and is there a genealogy? Uh, the hours, we have extended hours right now. We're, there are day, days when we will be open until midnight. So it's best to check the website because those hours, we have extended hours now, but regular hours will be from 10 in the morning until 5.30, 6.30 in the evening. About genealogy. African Americans, because of the because of slavery, have had a very difficult time tracing the family trees. But there are people who have become quite the expert in doing that. And my museum has hired one of the nation's leading authorities in well genealogy writ large, but in this case specifically African American genealogy. Her name is Hollis Gentry. And she has created a program in which she brings people in to the museum to actually put them through the paces, showing you actually how to research the trees. This is uh, the the trees, (laughs) the the genealogical trees. We're also working with the Mormon church, where there is an extraordinary commitment to genealogy, and it brought it into the 21st century with computer searches that are uh, extraordinary. So, yes. And if you are interested in that, and I hope you are, that too is something that I will share with the congregation because the training is is quite remarkable. We have ways of of connecting people to using the papers of the Freedmen's Bureau to help people find out who their ancestors were. So it's it's quite a hot topic at the museum. From from the big. Um, the, a gentleman was asking if there's any unifying theme or, or in the spirit of the African-American culture that shows up in the architecture. And the answer is yes. The first challenge for the design team was to, quite frankly, create something that was worthy of being on the mall and something that was worthy of the rich history of African-American history. So it had to be exceptionally good. The spirit, the African-American spirit that is, spo- that, is being, that is embodied in the physical structure is one of its resilience and its celebration. The hands out, the arms out like this is done, is taken from a piece of, of Yoruba sculpture that was a traditional celebration mode. It's also, if you look at the beautiful um, design, the elegant ironwork that pays homage to the ironwork done by the enslaved in Charleston and Savannah. So there's that, that history of, of that art, arts community. Resilience, hope, and paying attention to the artistry of the past. I wish I could show you how long the waiting list is for docent training. There are hundreds of docents who have been trained, and there are hundreds waiting to be trained. And these docents are trained in the fine points of African-American history. They're trained in being able to talk in great detail, in great depth, about
about individual exhibitions, be it the history of sports, the history of military, uh, the history of um, fashion, the history of music. They are also trained to keep a close eye on people who are in the exhibition spaces who are having a very difficult time dealing with what they are seeing. It's not easy to look at Emmett Till's casket and be able to look inside that casket and see the photograph taken in 1955 of that murdered child. Brutal, brutal, horrific photograph. And it was a photograph that was, um, that was published in Jet Magazine because, uh, whose founder is on the museum's board of, of directors. And she was there last night. It is very difficult to look at that and not be hurt. So there are people who are trained to guide people through the pain of seeing signs of um, photographs of lynchings, seeing a wall with thousands of names of lynching victims. So they are there. I I have not done that training, but I intend to do that training because I know that there will be people who need it. It probably helped me out, too. Now, I am not about to go back to Lonnie Bunch and say somebody questioned whether you were blowing smoke. <laughs> Lonnie Bunch is just, uh, he, he was absolutely right. There, there are things that had to go into this building. Well, first of all, let me, let me stop here. We have built a collection of 40,000 pieces. 40,000. The 12 inaugural exhibitions that you will be able to see right now only show 3,000 of those objects. Because we had, we built, we started this museum from scratch, we had nothing. We had no money, we had no construction site, we had no design, we had no collection. So Lonnie Bunch and his curator said, decided what exhibitions, what stories needed to be told, and then they went out and found things to tell those stories. And this to your point. There were times when we said, well, you know, we need to tell the story of segregation as it played out in the transportation system. So Lonnie Bunch says, I need a Jim Crow railroad car, railroad car, railway car. We found one in Tennessee. It was rusted beyond belief. You couldn't imagine anybody being able to ride in that thing because it didn't look like it could roll. I did roll in it, but it was so big that we had to put that in the space. It's there forever. It will never be moved. We put it in before we put the roof on. So there was another moment when the traffic was stopped on Constitution Avenue because we had to rail, we had to drag this railroad car from tent from Kentucky. Roof was off, get a crane, lower that. Same thing happened with... Um, a guard tower from the Angola prison in Louisiana, which is the roughest, toughest, maximum security penitentiary on the planet. And there are people who say that um, African Americans being imprisoned in penal systems like that, that's a new form of slavery. They are working in these in horrific conditions. They're living in horrific conditions. There are always the threat of people escaping, so there's this guard tower. So we have this huge guard tower that had to be lowered into the museum before the wall, 
not the wall, before the ceiling was put on. So those big items had to be in a space, so we de- designed the space around them. And that's what he's talking about. He's also, if you look at the building, some people say, oh, Fleur, your building's not finished yet. You've got these big spaces where you don't have, you don't have the, the corona, you don't have those golden... I said, no, that's not, we, we, it's not a mistake. We left the wall, we left it open so people on the inside of the museum could look outside on a particular vista and understand that, that what they see outside is actually part of the exhibition. For instance, you look out this huge window and you see the space where Martin Luther King had 250,000 people come there to do the March on Washington in 1963. You see it. There's exhibition about that in, behind you, but there's also the actual site where that played out right in front of you. Oh, this gentleman had the nerve to ask me. <laughs> Lord knows I've been changed. <laughs> I have indeed been changed. Um, I, I went to Vassar College as a one who was going to spend a career writing short stories and singing opera. And um, I did a lot of that, a lot of both. And um, I also wrote for newspapers. Being at work for 10 years on this museum, I am so sorry that I did not major in history. Because what has happened in this country is just amazing. Most of us don't have a deep, rich understanding of what has happened. Most of us don't even have the knowledge of just the basics. But when you get beneath the, ba- beneath the basics and you see the nuance, you see how... I'm, I'm sorry I did not major in history. And I have the highest respect for these people who did because we have used them ruthlessly. <laughs> ruthlessly. We, have, <laughs> we have what we call a scholarly advisory committee and it is made up of 22 people with who are the highest-ranking, most respected historians that you can find, and they gather with us five times a year to help us shape the exhibitions, to help us shape the publications, the intellectual content, and, and the presentation of it. Um, I've, I've also been changed because I now have a deeper respect for, and this sounds very strange coming from somebody who is a journalist. I spent most of my career as a newspaper person, a newspaper writer and editor. I now have a higher level of respect for the people, the men and women who put these stories in the newspapers, the magazines, and on the TV screens. They're paying attention to what's happening today, but they are grounding it in what happened in the past. We have some extraordinary journalists doing some work that, that we will be made better if we read it and listen to it carefully. We learn about the present and we learn about the past. Well, the, um, the question has to do with the, with the King family's reluctance to share the items with my museum and other museums like it. 
And the answer is yes, the, the family has decided that they can hold on to these items till they get the highest price. Uh, and there are people who out there who are ready to write extraordinary checks for these for these items and it's their property and we we would like to think that they would share it with the world and there may be a, a day when they will but we also know that there are items that are held by other people who are certainly ready willing and able to share that with us so we can share it with the world the short answer is they don't have everything and we know where other stuff is <laughs> And we will go get it. <laughs> okay. Other question? Yes. Yes. Um, you know, the I, I have a college classmate who is my counterpart at the the. We do not have an a, a full fledged exhibition that talks about that. You can't talk about slavery without talking about it in all of its guy making mention of it. We do not have the full-fledged exhibition, but we have a series of public programs connected to the exhibitions that are on view. So we are in a position now to take to design a public program to special to focus specifically on that issue as it played out in the north. The f our focus at, right at this point is on the South, but we have a way to talk about that. Mm -hmm. The question has to do with the contributions of African American women and, the, and how racism plays out in other parts of the country. You know, the United States is 50 states, and every state, practically every state, certainly every region has its own character, its own mindset. Um, we have an exhibition called The Power of Place in which we look at how African-American communities lived and thrived and, and lived in other parts of the country. We look at what at, at Tulsa, Oklahoma. We look at um, Massachusetts. We look at Oak Bluff, Martha, Martha's Vineyard. There is an African-American presence everywhere, and there, it, in every, every, every case, you can see the, the, the wonderful things that peop people have done, the beautiful lives that they have put together, and you, in every case, there is that thread of racism. Tulsa, Oklahoma, for instance, that's the West, and there was a community out there that was it was it was black business. I mean, it was Black Wall Street, thriving. People came from all over the country to settle in in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Thriving black community, beautiful neighborhoods, business district, thriving, burned to the ground by in riots at um, white supremacists. And that's the story that is also has to be told. The good part how they thrived, and how they were burned to the ground and had to rebuild. These are not good times. They are not. I would be lying if I said that we did not think about that at all. That's not the case. We think about it all the time. To answer your question without going into terrible, terribly distressing specifics, the security is very tight. I am part of a committee that uh, we meet once a month to talk about all things about security. This is really difficult. 
this, these are, it's not good. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, I was sitting, you know, very, very close to Barack Obama yesterday, and I kept looking up. And there were people on the roof with their rifles. And I had to put my head down and cry. I said, look at this glorious day. We have come this far. And we still have to live under the threat of people doing damage simply because they don't want this to happen. But yeah, we are concerned. And we will survive. <laughs>